Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of the Thank You and Good Night podcast. I'm Julia. And I'm Emily. And we are so excited to be back with you once again for another riveting discussion about The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about the one and only Susie Meyerson. And Associates. And Associates, and her quick wit, sharp tongue, and unparalleled sass. So we're going to go ahead and dive right into it and talk about all things Susie Meyerson. Pamela and others. So, one of the first things we wanted to talk about on this episode is Susie's many unexplained talents. And the reason why we find this so fascinating is because it seems like Amy Sherman Palladino has written in a lot of things about Susie that are just totally remarkable and unexpected for such a wild and crazy character. So, Emily, if you want to lead this off and and talk about some of the things that Susie does, which are just completely inexplicable, feel free. So I think we're going to start with probably the one thing we all three may have in common. May, I say, because it's a throwaway line that's never addressed again. But supposedly, Susie has a law degree. According to episode 3-5, where she says... uh, Um, something to the effect of it's sad I never used my law degree. It implies that Susie went to law school at some point, (laughs) which like one, why? Two, how? Three, again, why? Um, But I think that's such an interesting question. Like, does she have a law degree? If she has a law degree, does she have a bar license? If she doesn't have a bar license, did she ever have a bar license? Was it taken away? Did she never do it? Like, there are so many questions that that one, like, throwaway line opens. Tumage's point, wait, you have a law degree? I think it's so interesting. It honestly doesn't surprise me that she may, just given all of, like, Susie's brashness and her inability to recognize this isn't a normal space for women, particularly women like me, as she barges headfirst into managing and is the only female manager we've seen on this show. It doesn't surprise me that Susie would go, I'm going to law school to get myself out of the hellhole I grew up in, not realizing women at that time did not go to law school. And if they did go to law school, didn't become lawyers. But that's one of the ones that just like, to this day, I'm kind of like, that is an interesting throwaway line. I really need to know if this woman has a law degree. Yeah, I mean, I'm really curious about that, too. Uh, Obviously, for personal reasons. I mean, this hits so closely to home for us as two law students. But, you know, to think about if Susie actually did go to law school, I want to know where she went to law school, because I don't even think it was that common for law schools to accept women at that point in time, regardless of whether they wanted to go and kind of be self-sufficient in that sense. So I feel like this is something that's truly groundbreaking. And I'm sure that this is never something that's going to be explored again, because again, like you said, it's a total throwaway line. But I just feel like it's such an interesting backstory for Susie. And to me, it's kind of a natural segue for why she would want to go into 
this management situation because you need a lot of experience with the law. You have to have a fundamental understanding of contracts and how things are going to operate in that sense. Um, to get your client the best deal, you have to be a swift negotiator and a smooth talker. And all of those are skills which are required in law school. So it really wouldn't be the most surprising thing to me if Susie actually did go to law school. But I want to know where, what place actually took her? Was it on the premise that she they thought she was a little man? And, you know, what was the rationale for her even wanting to go to law school in the first place? And, and could she even afford law school? Because I don't... I was going to say, yeah. And like, how would Susie Meyerson handle a cold call? <laughs> Can you imagine <laughs> Susie Meyerson? I mean, for all of the lawyers who are listening or people who know people who have gone to law school or law students, you will all get that joke on a deep level. And everyone who isn't is going to be like, what the heck is this section of the podcast? But like, Susie Meyerson handling everything that gets thrown her is inherently funny and irreverent can you imagine what would happen if she got cold called on the first day of her 1l class because you know she wouldn't know that there was reading ahead of time that's totally true she would just be like oh i didn't read it and then the professor would say something sassy to her and she would sass right back i i imagine just a slew of you're a fucking idiot back to the professor because that would be something the professor would say to her um and it would just be a an endless cycle of terror. <laughs> so I don't know, but I would love to know more about this experience because I feel like it just opened up a new world for us and, and our deep fascination of Susie as a character since it's so relatable to our lives. And that's the thing that they do with Susie is we get these little tiny nuggets that get dropped and they never get mentioned again. Like the fact that she has perfect pitch and can tune a piano. Like, it's so interesting that in all of the various different things we do see of her taking over the Weissman's apartment when they're in Paris, she sits down to the piano, plays it classically, realizes a note is out of tune, which we haven't seen Abe acknowledge or recognize. She gets a tuning device, which I don't know where she would have found it because it's definitely not in that apartment, tunes it by her ear alone, and then continues to play like a perfect classical pianist. When did Susie learn how to play the piano like a classical pianist? Why does she have perfect pitch? Why does she know how to tune a piano? I mean, some of that, I guess, would make sense with we see her really early on in the show judging all the different acts that come to the gaslight. So I could see maybe her learning how to play from someone who regularly plays at the gaslight. I could certainly see her learning how to tune because Jackie couldn't deal with it. But it's this interesting little, like, from what we know of her background, which is that it was dark. And that no one paid attention to her when she was a child, which we will get to later in this episode. It clearly is a skill she did not pick up at home. And I think all of those little tiny details we get of things of either her trying to escape potentially her life like law school would be or things like this kind of show you for Susie to have come into her own self, she had to escape her home, which I think is a little different than the other characters we see on the show. I think, you know, certainly her friend Midge became who she was as a result of the support she had when she was younger of her parents. Like, certainly her parents were overbearing and controlling, but there wasn't, I don't feel like there's a sense that, like, Midge in any way, shape, or form had to leave her house in order to develop life skills. I feel like all of these little throwaway things are revealing of the fact that, like, for Susie to have survived as long as she had, she really had to go make it out on her own. I totally agree. And I don't know. I just, I feel like there's kind of an inconsistency here with the character because when you look at Susie 
and this is something we'll touch on later as well, and her relationship with money. You know, to be classically trained in piano, piano lessons cost a lot of money. It's expensive to have someone, you know, teach you either privately or um, to go to school and to learn that sort of thing. And so, again, this kind of ties back into the the same sort of thing that I raised with law school. How did she afford it? Because it seems like consistently throughout her life, Susie has not had a grasp on what it means to be financially sound and, and have um, a more cushy lifestyle. And piano lessons seem like a more cushy thing. Now, granted, maybe in the 1950s, it was more common for people to receive private music instruction. But nonetheless, it's to me striking that you have someone who has such limited resources, but still has such great ability. And to your end, she does seem to have a very astute conception of musical talent, especially when they're going through all these auditions and and seeing, you know, who can be a good performing act and what have you. To me, it was really striking that Susie has such a good ear and is able to pick up on that sort of thing. And that, to me, demonstrates that it's not just a rudimentary understanding of music, something she picked up at the gaslight that, you know, was on behalf of Jackie's inability to do it, but rather... I think it's more a testament to actual training. To have a musical ear the way Susie does, you have to have some sort of foundation of actual training. And and so I just wonder where that came from. And yeah, I mean, I think to a certain extent, though, like to give a personal example here, I have taught myself how to play piano. Like I am not good in the sense of like classically trained or remotely near classically trained. Like I'm not saying that, but like there is an I think to a certain extent, your own personal ability to hear music and to hear things and to teach yourself a little. Like, I think to your point, for her to have been that good, she definitely had to be taught by someone. Like, she couldn't have done that on her own. But I definitely think to a certain extent, like, if you are interested in music and you have a natural ability or inclination towards it, I do think your ear can get pretty developed pretty quickly. And I think, like, a lot of her her reading and hearing and like picking all the acts, right? Like I love the flute, even though the flute's not going to play there. I think all comes from this inner drive and sense of musicality, which I think fits more broadly into the Maisel world. It's like itself structurally because it's such a musical show, even though it doesn't necessarily fit into the world of the plot. And I think it's like one of these weird random periods of time where the show really bridges here is a character within our plot universe and here is a character within the structure of our show in that in Susie in a way you don't have with any of the other characters other than Abe who plays the piano a link between the externality musicality right and the diegetic musicality there is there is very rarely a sense of diegetic music in the show despite it how musical it is right they routinely describe it as an mgm musical without music when there is music it's normally coming from Susie or related to Susie. and i think just structurally that's an interesting point and so i'm wondering as we get all these different throwaway jokes and throwaway lines which all of these unexplained talents are jokes and i think it's interesting to explore why we are supposed to laugh at like multi-skilled women who can do a bunch of things that it seems incongruous with their character. Like just, it, it, it's an interesting point that that's kind of a joke that Susie Meyerson is classically trained in as a pianist is kind of played as a joke. Why is that a joke? 
Like, why are we supposed to find that funny? But even separate from that conversation, I think it's interesting how they play with Susie structurally in the show, not just Susie as a plot character. That that That's interesting that you bring it up like that, um, because I've never really... Well, I mean, of course, it's meant to be a joke, but... I've never really conceptualized it in that sense. The way I always thought about it was that they're trying to give some sort of backbone to Susie Meyerson as a character. So yes, granted, it's funny. Or the context in which it comes out is funny. I don't know if they're necessarily making fun of her as as a woman. Oh, I'm not saying they're she, making fun of her. I'm just saying, like, why is that kind of role a, a joke? Sure, sure. And... and, and to your point, I, I totally understand, but I've never really looked at it like that. The way I've always seen it is that they're trying to build out Susie as a character, and it would be something you would least expect from her type of character, because she's kind of grisly and gritty and doesn't mince words. And when you look at a person like Susie Meyerson, you expect someone to be kind of not really in tune with the finer things in life. You see her apartment and where she lives and, and what it looks like um, versus how it gets built up by someone taking it over, i.e. Jackie. You you see, you know, where she works and the type of life she leads. You see how she talks and eloquence often says a lot about a person's background and how they were raised. When a person drops an F-bomb every other word, I mean, to me, it says that they kind of were raised in an environment which was a tough environment and, and so these are often things that we and granted some of it might just be stereotyped too so I'm not saying that this is something that we should inherently associate with with the person like this but but it's really trying to play to a generic stereotype of a person who is not refined. Whereas when you look at Susie against Midge, you can see a stark contrast between Midge's um, higher education, well, and, you know, the junk, for lack of a better word, that she studied, the frivolous nature of what she studied, simply I because I told you she to can. study something practical. Right, because she comes from a, a point of privilege where she has a lot of means to do so and can do whatever she wants, and there there aren't really barriers for her. So for, for her character, you would anticipate something more like this because there's this constant push to be within the upper echelons of society, whereas you have Susie, who, you know, grew up in the Rockaways and does not really live this kind of Manhattan elegance and lavishness and so the stereotypes here would seem to hold true that you would have uh, less of an ability to do these things so I think it's just more so to be a shock and surprise that that she has such a rich background um, and, and you wouldn't anticipate it from a character like her. I think this is a good place to transition to why and what that background looks like. So I think next up we'll take her family and then maybe after that kind of move on to a relationship with money. Yeah, that sounds good to me. Susie and her family is, I think, perhaps one of the most interesting parts of this character. You have her actual biological family, so the mother we never meet but hear an awful lot about, who clearly has a very long reach over the lives of her children. We have her brothers who are assholes and her sister who's wonderful but married to an asshole. And then you also have her found family, 
So her chosen family of Midge and Jackie and everybody at the gaslight. And then, of course, I think the best member of Susie's family, Pamela the Plunger. The plunger she got so attached to, she named. Because let's be honest. Long live Pamela the Plunger. We love Pamela the Plunger. Long live Pamela. This is a Pamela the Plunger fan (laughs) podcast. Like, we just have to put it out there that we do not stand anyone on this show except Pamela the Plunger. (laughs) Pamela the Plunger. It's just such a great moment for Susie to actually have a friend like Pamela the Plunger. Someone who is by her side through everything. Like, she's by Midge's side. But, um... Except when she loses Pamela the Plunger. (laughs) Well, or when she turns her back and someone else takes it and uses it. (laughs) What kind of sick person does that? I am honestly with her on that. I think that that, like, is one of the saddest, funniest thing that happens in the Catskills. I mean, like, a lot of stuff goes down in the Catskills, but honestly, the most disturbing to me is the fact that someone just takes a random plunger and uses it. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it wouldn't be the first thing I would do. Definitely not my choice. Um, I I don't like to use a plunger in general, but you you do what you must. And and so uh, to take someone else's is uh, just kind of shocking and harrowing. Where has that been? Okay. Anyway, we will get off our random plunger talk because this is disgusting and this is a podcast. So I think, I think for me, one of the most interesting things is this juxtaposition of the family she wants to forget about but is constantly being drug into and the family she's in that she's found that she's constantly ragging on and you can clearly tell she never wants to be away from. And I think that that juxtaposition is so fascinating. Like, fully embracing one group of people but acting with the nonchalant like I don't care about anything I don't care about anyone almost as if because of her previous experience she doesn't want to let people in because she's afraid of what happens when she lets the people in I think it's such an interesting difference in her dynamic from her sister who she likes with her relationship with Jackie which feels very much like I think a brotherly relationship she wanted but didn't have because quote her brothers are assholes and I think That kind of way that the show uses family generally, like family on the show is, I think, almost the most important theme, I think, for everyone, right? I think a large theme is your family shapes who you are. I think another theme is your family shapes who you can become. I think family is what family is made to be is another theme. And I think that's really true with Susie. And so I'm kind of wondering your thoughts on the interplay between her actual family who we only see a couple of times and her gaslight family who we see all the time. And if you kind of like me see it not as replacing the other, but as definitely informing each other. Yeah. I I mean, I definitely think it's an important role that it plays, especially because it seems to me that the only person within Susie's family that she could rely on was her sister since her sister is deemed to be lovely. And while that's important, I feel like she had lacked a lot in her life because her dad's an asshole, her mom's an asshole, her two brothers are assholes. Like, the whole thing just kind of falls apart when you don't have a solid support system from your parents and you can only lean on your sister. Um, it would, to me, kind of feel isolating. And, and so I would understand that. At the same time, I think she really leans heavily on her Gaslight family, as you suggest with Jackie, because she never had a strong male counterpart in her life. 
um, given the situation with her brothers and her father. And so to her, Jackie kind of stood out as the male counterpart that she could really lean on and trust. And so I would love to know, and granted, I understand we probably will not get this backstory because Brian Tarantina has unfortunately passed on and that is such a huge loss. But I would love to know more of the Susie and Jackie backstory because we come into it with them having a very, very solid relationship. And I want to know how it began in the first place because I feel like they're both kind of crass in a way. But he also has a side which can really mellow her out. It's seen a lot within her apartment when he moves in and starts cleaning it up and, you know, does all of this wonderful stuff to make it actually look like a home instead of... A hovel? Yeah. Um, For lack of a better word, yeah. I mean, that sums it up perfectly. And, And so he kind of seems to be the yin to her yang irrespective of the fact that he can talk quick wit with her and and be just as as sharp as she is and and really you know does not mince words when it comes to to throwing sass they seem to kind of be the balance that is needed And, and so i feel like this is such a different scenario for her with a man in her life than what she's used to. And so I'm also wondering, you know, if the men in her life had a tendency to reject her because of the way she carries herself. And this is going to relate to a conversation we're going to have later on about her sexuality and and how she um, presents herself. But... I'm wondering if that had anything to do with the way that the men in her life treated her or if her family actually are objectively assholes. I think that last point is a very interesting point. I think from the scene that we see of her family when they're discussing what they're going to do with grandma's property, I think it reads pretty clearly, it wouldn't matter if Susie was a beauty queen, her brothers are assholes. Like, the way that they're acting is the fact that she's a girl at all. The fact that she bothers to tell them what they're doing at all, right? The fact that she comes in presumptuously thinking anything at all, right? The fact that she's telling anyone to do anything is the problem. I don't think it's, I don't think it matters how Susie would present herself or what Susie's identity was, right? I I think, I think it's just the case of they're misogynistic assholes. Right. And to your point, I think the show does a really good job of covering that a lot because it's not just Susie. I mean, it's society at large, like the way that patriarchy, you know, dominates Midge's life and Rose's life. And and so I think it is to to a degree just the era and how women at large are supposed to be subservient to the male character, for sure. I totally agree with you. Continue. No, um... (laughs) I, uh, no, I, I, so I think that to answer your first thing, but one of the interesting things, and this is going to go a little bit in a different direction than brother and sister here, but one of the things I love about the show is how well paired people end up being like the show really has this strong theme of you find who you need to find. Like you find the people you need in your life, right? Moish and Shirley could not exist with anybody other than Moish and Shirley. 
I, I'm not I'm not getting into anything other than just those are two very strong personalities who really can only tolerate each other, right? They somehow miraculously in the world of however many people existed in the 1940s and 50s found each other in New York, right? Midge and Susie found each other, right? Midge and Susie needed each other and found each other when they needed each other. Whenever Susie found Jackie, which we may get a little bit of depending on how they're going to deal with Jackie's death. Unfortunately, it's a thing they are going to have to deal with and it's sad and I'm going to be so sad not to get Jackie anymore because I love Jackie as a character and he was such an interesting character on the campus and how he interacted with Midge, not just how he interacted with Susie. But however Susie ended up finding Jackie, it feels like yet another one of those moments to your earlier point of they're both very crass people it feels like such a moment of however the universe ends up working on this show, you end up finding who you need to find. And I feel like in a lot of ways, these are two people who aren't soulmates in like a romantic sense, but certainly are in a platonic sense. They get, they get each other. They make each other better, right? You said he calms her, he mellows her, he turns her house into something that's actually livable and habitable, and she enjoys coming home, even though she hates Sophie Lennon, right? And I think it's also true for Jackie that Susie, right, gives him someone to play with. It gives him someone something to do. I get a sense that his life at the gaslight is incredibly monotonous, and he takes pride and joy in what Susie and Midge bring, right? With that little interview with the reporter early on in season two, he's like, I was there. I, and like inserting him into this conversation, himself into this conversation, because he, he, he's a part of that. And like, it gives him something to be a part of, because he, like Susie, I think, was searching for something to come along when Mitch came into their lives. And I think certainly the juxtaposition between her actual family and her found family of Mitch and Jackie, I think is reflective of the theme of within this show, at least, you find who you need to find when you need to find them. That's a good point. I mean, and especially, you know, in the context of Midge, I, I think that it's it's really interesting talking about you find who you need to find when you need to find them because, you know, Midge just kind of appears out of the blue. Like, it's not really anything that Susie probably had on her radar in the first place. I don't think Susie wanted it in the first place, but it's evident that as time goes on and they start to develop their relationship, that there very, very clearly is a lot of love between the two of them. And they can bounce off of each other similarly to the way that, you know, Jackie is Susie's uh, yin to her yang. I would say that it's the same situation with Midge. Despite Midge and Jackie being very, very, very different characters, they have the same effect on Susie, which is really interesting to me. Because I guess that's a testament to the fact that you can have different people in your life, like very fundamentally different people in your life, but they can still speak to elements of your soul in different ways. So like, for instance, Midge is a total opposite to Susie, and yet gives Susie a very, very, very fulfilling dynamic gives her love and support and actively wants to build a friendship even though she lives kind of this jappy lifestyle and I'm allowed to say that because I'm Jewish but she really does live a jappy lifestyle the little cakes which you know the first time that Susie comes to Midge's apartment 
the little cakes and the fact that Midge wants to go do comedy every night and and has all these wild expectations for Susie when Susie is a working woman and and cannot live that life really just is so striking because there is such a fundamental difference between them as characters but realistically they're so interrelated they're they're like soul sisters they really are because they get one another Midge needs a hard talking to sometimes and Susie will give it to her. But also Midge isn't afraid to tell Susie to go after her dreams. And I think that's a really important thing because it seems to me like Susie is used to being spat on and shot down at all points, not being accepted in the world, you know, between being mistaken for a man all the time or just working a crummy job. Um, it, it really seems like she's used to not having ambition and used to not living a life that she otherwise would. And Midge gives her the confidence to be able to do that. For once, Susie Meyerson can actually see Susie Meyerson and Associates coming into fruition because of Midge. And, and so I think that that also says something to the fact that there are multiple pieces and parts. You don't have to be completely similar like Jackie is to Susie to have a strong and powerful dynamic. And I think what you're saying there is really interesting. And I'm going to use that to transition to our next topic, specifically Susie's gambling addiction. I think the way that Midge brings out things in Susie, this confidence, this ambition, this drive, a reason for it, I think also kind of comes and feeds into, I think, what ultimately leads to the gambling addiction, which is I don't think Susie knows how to do with what's happened to her. I think I think she's given very, very suddenly the talent that is Midge into the gaslight. And I think she goes, oh, okay, this is something I can do something with. And for the first time has, has an outlet for whatever ambition, however small, was percolating within her. So like, I'm going to develop this. This one's mine. This I can do something with. And then Midge goes from middling to successful in the second season. And I think Susie wants to push Midge to be more and more successful, but I don't think so. Susie ever guessed in a million years they would be going from barely doing clubs in midtown Manhattan, where she's getting dragged off the stage for joking about pregnancy, to then being on tour with Shy Baldwin. Because that's basically what happens. It's like zero to 60 very, very quickly there. And I think Susie, between the Sophie money and the Midge money and all of the success and all of the stress, I think doesn't know what to do with the success and this money. And I'm wondering if they hadn't gone to Vegas, would Susie have channeled or developed that kind of addictive behavior? I think it's very clear based on her alcoholic mother, she has a genetic tendency to addictive behavior. And like, I want very clear, I'm not judging anybody who does these things. Addiction is an illness. I understand that people need treatment. And I'm, I'm not saying... I'm not saying that this is like a personal moral failure or anything. I just want to be clear about that. I'm just wondering if when Susie got overwhelmed by it, which I think she did in Vegas as she's desperately trying to go back and forth and between the now very successful Midge and the very successful Sophie, where she's got money coming in at a rate she's never had before, which she doesn't know how to deal with and doesn't know how to handle and doesn't know how to address, which becomes very clear when she asks Joel for help, right? The only person she can think of in her life who has any semblance of control over money is the asshole ex-husband of her client who she hates, like, I think that's very telling about Susie's understanding of the way that you manage money and control of money. 
So I'm just wondering if like the gambling addiction was the one she developed because they were in Vegas and she could spend the money. Like there was money readily available for her to readily spend. I'm wondering if it would have been a different kind of addictive behavior, like alcoholism, like her mother, if I wonder if it would have been alcoholism like her mother if they had started in Miami. You know what I mean? Like, I, I feel like the development of the addiction is a mix of her genetic predisposition and her inability to cope. And I feel like her inability to cope is a result of the surprise of Midge landing in her lap. I'm going to stop talking at this point and pass it over to you. First of all, I want to comment on the fact that you brought up the scene with Susie and Joel at the Button Club, because to me, that was such a powerful scene. And you know, I love Joel. But I think this was Susie's moment of reconciliation with Joel, too, because this is she ultimately wants to protect Midge. And she very, very much hates the fact that Joel took advantage as he did. Like, she constantly refers to Joel as Midge's asshole ex-husband and stuff like that. So Susie's coming into this from a perspective in which she hates Joel because of what Joel did to Midge. Um, and, And you can see how protective she is. But I think that that moment when she goes to Joel and asks him for help to manage Midge's money because she knows that she can't is just such a... It really breaches the the barrier that they were facing before and and I feel like I would love to see their relationship continue to develop in some sort of way because we just got a little touch upon that so first and foremost I just wanted to put that out there that that scene absolutely broke my heart I was in tears when I saw it the first time because she's there crying going to Joel and talking about the fact that Joel is the only one who can handle Midge's money because he really loves her and that was such a beautiful thing so Susie is starting to come to terms with who Joel is as a person and acknowledge that he's not that bad and and to me that's really a beautiful thing first and foremost second I think the idea of this addictive personality is so important to address here because it really is something that is genetic. And and again, to your point, you know, this is not to pass judgment. It is genetically inherited. It's an illness. I understand that completely. Yes. But I do think that there is some sort of predisposition here to having an addictive personality. And... I don't know necessarily if there would have been something else she would have turned to because we know she drinks and that's not really an issue. We know she smokes and that's not really an issue. I mean, everybody also in the 1950s and 1960s was lighting up anyway. So that's, you know, yes, she's addicted to smoking, but it's not something you would really think much of at the time. That's normal. Um, So I don't know if she necessarily would have developed any type of addiction otherwise. Um, I think that this is very much just kind of a a very sort of the circumstances were there and so it led her to do so because she kind of got on this idea that, you know, a little bit of money will lead to a lot of money and I think it's more so kind of the idea of the absence of money that she always had in her life. And so anything she could possibly do to max out the amount of money that she has seemed like an appealing um, sort of feature for her. So if she could get more money based on the little bit that she already had, you know, she was going to take that opportunity and roll with the punches. Of course, when you're gambling in Las Vegas, that's not how it works because you end up losing more money than you 
bring in, you probably end up with less than you started with in most circumstances. And, and so I think she fundamentally doesn't understand that, but she's really into the idea that she thinks she can make more than she had. And I think maybe it's because of the low income lifestyle she was so used to that she wants to build up her life, wants to build up Susie Meyerson and Associates. And, and how do you, you know, gain business um, acumen if you don't have money. You, you, you can have all the genius and inspiration there. You can have the propensity for business startup. You can have the ambition to be a woman in management. But until you have the resources to be able to do that, when no one takes you seriously and no one will lend you money to do so, how else are you going to go about fulfilling that dream? Money money really does talk. And so I think that this kind of speaks to something larger here that, you know, maybe this gambling addiction started because she's used to not having money and she wants more to make her life better than it has been for her in the past. We need to wrap this section up and get moving on a different topic, but I want to end with this. And I think we should totally later on in the show do an episode on this theme because the show has a very interesting conversation about money. Like it's never explicit, but it's always percolating in the background. You have your old money, which is the Weissman clan because Rose comes from old money. You have your new money who are the Maisels because Moish made the money. And then you have Susie who comes from a very, very working class background, if not below working class and there's always this dialogue this show is having about what does that mean for your life in New York what does it mean about your prospective careers and your futures what is it in how does it inform your gender how does it inform your relationship with others um and I I think to your point I think that whole plotline with Susie gambling maybe to make more money, gambling because she comes from a genetic predisposition for it, whatever the consequence of it is, her inability to handle it and needing to go to someone who can, right? Joel, who whips his parents' finances into shape. I think it's an interesting conversation that the show is having about money and the fact that they're choosing to have it this particular third season with the Weissmans who lose their money and Susie who gains it and then loses it again. But I think now's a good point for us to transition into our last topic of the episode, Susie and her sexuality. Last but not least, here we go into perhaps the most contested issue Susie's sexuality, a lot of people think she's a butch lesbian, but a lot of people also think she's asexual. So we're going to dive right into that and see where we come down. I have a very clear perspective. Emily, I don't know about yours. We've talked about it briefly, but have never really gotten into it. So yeah, I'm interested. Yeah, I mean, my, my perspective is she is coded clearly within the text and I don't necessarily know how you read the coding in a in a way that isn't based on your not necessarily on your own personal bias, but like I have friends who read her two completely different ways based on their own personal experiences and their own personal sexuality. And I don't want to take an opinion because I am a straight woman that reads 
into it a particular way, if that then makes my friends from the LGBT community feel underrepresented or underinclusive. So like my view of it is coming at it from like an English major who got taught to read the text. I read her really as a butch presenting lesbian, but I also have friends who are ace and who take so much pride in having an ace character based on the way they read the same coding. And I don't want to say that that isn't perfectly valid or perfect or perfectly something you can do because as a disabled woman, I understand how much power comes from taking a character that isn't necessarily written that way, but reading in to the coding, what would then make you feel represented. So that's, that's my very long winded complicated stance. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I kind of, I, I, view Susie as a butch lesbian as well. I don't I don't read her as asexual, but I think that the perspective is 100% valid because, you know, at the time there really was no um, you know, like conceptualization of gender identity. Like gender and sexuality were viewed as part and parcel. This distinction is something that really is kind of something that's new. Like within the last decade, we have all these new gender identities and and understandings coming out. So today we have a, a foundational understanding that gender is something that's a societal construct, whereas, you know, your sex is something that's inherited at birth. But at that time, there really wasn't a way to distinguish the two. So I also have to tend to wonder what her gender identity would be. You know, we know Susie as she, but because those are the times. But if we were to kind of create sort of an anachronistic situation where we put Susie into 2020, you know, would Susie herself still consider herself a she or would she identify you know trans or would she identify gender non-binary non-binary they them i mean i have so many questions about Susie's gender identity she i guess presents herself as a butch, butch lesbian and and i think that's something that's important to note but you know how would it be if if times were different and there was more of a fundamental understanding that there is not just a set gender coding that that was at the time you know just two genders um no and I definitely think that there's something to the fact that she is constantly misgendered like constantly I think it's so telling to me that there are three people on the show who get her gender right off the bat Midge's parents and Midge are the only people who say it's a she or it's clearly a she or refer to her as a her, which is what Susie identifies herself as. Like, it's explicit when she's having the conversation with the two people who come to kidnap her, the best kidnappers in New York, who then take her home to the Rockaways and feed her before they play skipping rocks. I I love them. I know I'm not supposed to because they're hitmen, but boy, howdy, I love them. Um, they're great characters, but like when they're having the whole conversation, is it a she? Is it a girl? And Susie's like, yes, I'm a girl. I don't think she's saying it partially because she's afraid she thinks that'll get her out of it. Although I think that's part of it. I think she's saying it because she is. And I think she identifies. And like you said, at the time, if your options are boy, girl, I think Susie would still identify easily as I'm a girl. I think if we put her in a modern context, I think there is a question, would she identify as a they or a them or would she be something else? I think it's a genuine, interesting question. And I'd love to hear feedback from people who listen to the podcast on their thoughts about that. Um, but I, I think the fact that everyone misgenders her, I think, isn't 
separate from the question of is she a lesbian is she ace is she something else um I I think that's also a very interesting conversation that the show is having um not just about sexuality but about gender itself the show I think in a lot of ways is inherently designed to attack and critique gendered stereotypes like I feel like so much of Midge's character is critiquing the idea that feminine that femininity and like what is feminine cannot also then be what is masculine. Midge has a very masculine drive and a very masculine ambition and a very masculine inability to apologize for taking up space. She doesn't apologize for who she is. And that is in this society that we currently live in and certainly at the time then considered a masculine trait. Joel has a lot of femininity to him, right? He's a, he's a masculine male man, but he emotes. He wants to be forgiven. He gets, he expresses his sadness and he expresses his anger. Go ahead. I see you raising your hand. Which I would just like to say, like, let's normalize that, please. Because men really do need to be in touch with their emotional sides. Please, men, if you are listening to this, cry. It's okay to cry. It's okay to express love. It's okay to express frustration and, and deep sadness and profound grief. Like, please just be emotive and expressive. It you is normal. Human. It's okay to be human. But like, there's that aspect. And we look at that dynamic. Abe and Rose constantly play with gender dynamics and gender norms, right? Like for all of Rose's extreme femininity, I think she's even more performative in it than Midge's. And that's saying something. She also is doing very, 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 very masculine things in terms of control and ambition and and power. Like the way she wields power is very masculine, even if it is in a very domestic, very feminine way. And Abe is very feminine in our terms of like stereotypical femininity in the way he constantly is trying to smooth things over and acquiesce and make the peace, right? Like there is a peace building nature of Abe that we associate with female leadership, right? And I think the way that it plays with people or gender, what we associate with masculinity and femininity, I think the show is saying our stereotypes aren't true and people should should be allowed to be people. And I think Susie is such a perfect example of the show explicitly saying people are people. These are traits of people. We have erroneously said women can do this, men can do this, and that toxic masculinity and toxic femininity say you can't be something else. And I just think that, you know, it is horrible and horrific, and it hurts me every time someone misgenders Susie. But I also think that that's part of the larger larger conversation the show is having about gender. Is like, what does it say that every single person at the USO base assumes her manager has to be a man? I mean, that's just toxic masculinity in general, because that's a very, like, rah-rah, like, not to bash the army, but that's a very rah-rah, go army-like sort of perspective in the 1950s and 1960s. You know, and... I think even today, there's still a lot of misogyny within the armed forces, you know? So granted, this is something that like is a societal norm, but it's a societal norm that needs to change. And I think you're right to the sense that the show is doing something so groundbreaking with gender norms and gender stereotypes and, and the understanding of the female sex and the understanding of the male sex. Because at this point in time, 
the late 1950s, the early 1960s, there's a very clear delineation of what a woman's role in society is. And we have people breaking ground, like you said, from Midge and Rose and Susie, all very, very strong female characters, even a character like Sophie Lennon, breaking barriers and really doing something that women at the time could not be expected to do. So I do think you're right that this is a bigger critique that Yes, it is absolutely awful that Susie is misgendered. Put it in the context of the time, it seems kind of normal. Not something that should be normalized, but appreciated what the show does as a period piece. Aside from that, I think it's a testament to the fact that Susie has the tenacity of a man. Susie carries herself like a man, or what we would expect a man to carry himself like. Susie is not afraid to really get down to brass tacks and do business. She's not afraid to be ambitious. She's not afraid to really put herself out there and, and own her strengths. And I think that that was something characteristic at the time that women were often not expected to do. They were meant to sit back and, and take second seat to a man. And Susie doesn't need to take second seat to a man. Even with Jackie, it's very, very clear who runs the gaslight. You know, like, Susie is the balls of the operation. The whole thing screams Susie. You know, Jackie is there to serve as an assisting role to Susie. And I think that's so, so powerful. I don't care, you know, whether she's a butch lesbian or asexual. I don't think that necessarily plays into it. I think it's just the fact that Susie is gutsy. Susie has what it takes and Susie is willing to play with men. I definitely think you're right that whatever her sexuality is doesn't play into whether or not they're misgendering her. I definitely agree with that. And I definitely agree with you that her her personality is her personality, irrespective of how we have a conversation about what her sexuality is. But I also think it is so important, particularly given how closeted people were at that period of time and how we're on the cusp of what will eventually lead to where we are now, which is not equal, but a very different place in the world than it was back at that time. I think it is important that we honestly have a conversation about what is Susie. And I think it's important that the show eventually has the conversation. I know that Alex has said things in interviews about what she thinks. And I think that that's wonderful. And I am the kind of person, and this will become clear as we do more and more of these episodes, who definitely believe that what an actor thinks they're doing in a scene is as important, if not more important, than what the writer intended. Because at the end of the day, it's what an actor puts into a performance that you see. It's not just what an actor says. But I know that Amy has also talked about the fact that she doesn't necessarily want to explore it. And I think that there's an obligation now that they have explored Shy and what it means for Shy to have been in the closet and what Shy's experience was and what they code about Reggie and his relationship with Reggie, which I'm sure we'll address at a later episode, for us to have an honest and frank conversation about, okay, well, that's what it was like to be a gay man. What does it mean to have been a lesbian? And particularly if it is Susie, how does that change how she's seen the world and how isolated she is and how insulated she is? And if she's not a lesbian and if she's ace, well, what does that mean in a time where I think certainly of all of the identities, that was probably the one that had the one of the least amounts of awareness for and some of the most resistance because I know in the current era, that's still one of the ones where people are like, well, you're confused and whatever, which is wrong and horrible and like point blank, that needs to stop. But 
I, I think given the prejudice of that identity now, I can't even imagine what it would have been like if that was the case for Susie. And so I, I, I don't know. I just think that's a conversation the show needs to have. And I, I don't know if it will. I totally agree. I mean, I would love to see it. And I, I really want to see some sort of other um representation of sexual orientation within this show. I mean, whether she is a lesbian or whether she is asexual, I think it's something that's so important to touch on, especially in such turbulent times right now, because we need more allyship, especially from, you know, the stage and screen communities. And I feel like it's really, really necessary to see sort of representation of different sexual orientations. So it's great that we have a gay man um, shown on the show. But I also would love to see some lesbian representation because usually when we see lesbian representation, it's in a way to fetishize lesbians. It's not in a way to actually portray them effectively for the times that they're seen. And same with gay men as well. Gay men are often very heavily fetishized in media. I think it would be really great to see a little bit more elaboration into Susie's sexuality just because this is a period piece and it could do really, really important work, especially because at the time there was this constant push and pull for LGBTQIA rights. Like you would walk a couple steps forward with activism, but then you would go a couple steps back with decisions that are put out by the Supreme Court or by policies that were enacted by the federal government that would, you know, criminalize homosexual behavior or, you know, all sorts of stuff that was made to view um, homosexual behavior as lewdness or something that was unaccepted within society or something that, you know, was just inherently morally impermissible to the point where they would consider it to be objectionable in a different standard than would otherwise be for other sexual acts from a heterosexual couple. Um, and, and so I would kind of really, really love to see kind of the implications that are there within the time period itself. No, and I, I definitely agree with that. And I also think, and the, I want to say, I personally do not think we should define characters in any show, in any kind of relationship, based on their romantic relationships with anyone else. Like, just point blank general statement, I hate that. I hate here, when you here. define, I hate when you define characters like, oh, so-and-so's husband, or oh, so-and-so's wife. Like, I hate that. I also don't think it's fair, though, that we define on this show Midge relative to which of the three men do you want her with, or Rose and Abe as Rose and Abe, or Moish and Shirley as Moish and Shirley, or any of these other background characters with who are they in a relationship with. And Susie doesn't have that. Not saying that Susie necessarily needs that because, again, I don't think we should ever define someone based on a relationship. But, like, it feels to me like a disservice we haven't had the conversation. If Susie is not in a relationship because she's ace, that is an important part of who Susie is. If Susie is not in a relationship because she's a closeted lesbian, that's an important part of who she is. And that's a conversation we need to have. I'm not saying you should ever define someone by a relationship or their relationship status. I think that's an important conversation to have when everyone else on the show has it. 
Like, it's not the most defining feature of who Midge is, who she ends up with at the end of the show. It's not the most defining feature for who Rose and Abe are, that they're Rose and Abe. But it is something there. And I think it's important that if we are going to talk about equality and we're going to talk about positive representations, then that needs to be treated as an equally important relationship. And it needs to be treated with as much respect as you give any straight relationship, at least in my opinion. I'm with you. I mean, I think it's really important in general, especially because so much of the talk of the show does come down to relationships, regardless of what the intended purpose of the show is. And I'm guilty of doing the same because, as we know, I'm very much Team Joel. You know, like, it's inherently there and it's ingrained. And it doesn't necessarily have to be the premise of the show, but it is an important feature because we do have a very clear attachment to characters and the relationships that they build and you almost feel like you're sitting in in on that relationship itself and so i think part of the reason why it's so important to have the representation of who Susie is more fully in terms of her relationship or lack thereof whether it's by choice or whether there are some external forces driving it is because to me it seems like it will give other people the sense of representation that they need to see. Like for me, I very much personally feel a sense of attachment to Midge and Joel because I can see a lot of characteristics in that relationship that I admire. You know, I think it's important to see similar representation from Susie's end because it will do a whole lot of good for communities that often do not see that kind of representation to see positive representation in media and say I can identify with this or this is an issue I struggle with or this is something that I really aspire to have in a relationship. And I think that's the perfect note for us to end this week on. So we want to thank all of you for making it through our second episode. Woohoo! We did two of these. We're so glad. We're so, so glad to have you on board with us because this has been a lot of fun. It started off as a crazy little dream and now we're finally making big strides to having an actual podcast, which is so exciting for us. So thank you, thank you, thank you a million for listening and for giving us feedback. If you do not know what our social media handles are for you to engage with us, we're as a podcast on Twitter at at T-Y-N-G-N pod. So basically shortened version of thank you and good night podcast. Um, our individual Twitter's handles are. I'm Mazelis. And I'm at the Weissman. And we're also on Instagram with the same general handle as our Twitter account. So the at T-Y and good night pod. Um, that's it for us this week. Join us next time as we talk about Joel Mazel, a controversial one that you're certainly not going to want to miss. Particularly if you're a Team Joel fan or you're anti-Team Joel and you want ammunition to argue against us. Neither one of us are Mrs. Mazel. Thank, Thank you, you and, and good, good night. night.